when life is overwhelming and when you feel like you just can't go on, like you, you can't go on another day. And when you're exhausted and you're depleted and you feel like you have nothing else to give, nothing else to give anyone else, nothing else to give God even. And when you're confused and you wonder what in the world God is doing, and when you wonder if He even cares, and when you've been stabbed and the cut is deep, you can trust Jesus. When life is overwhelming, you can trust Jesus. When you're confused, you can trust Jesus. So when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. That's what the great British preacher Charles Spurgeon said. When you can't trace God's hand and you wonder what in the world he is doing in your life and why he is allowing what is happening in your life, you can trust his heart. When you are at a loss from all the loss you have experienced, you can still trust the heart of Jesus. When you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Trust that he is the father of all mercies and the God of all comforts. And that's what we'll see with the Apostle Paul in our passage today. So turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're continuing our series called Neon Gospel. And that'll make more sense, especially when we get to chapters 3 and 4, where we will be reminded that the glory of God shines forth in the face of His Son, Jesus Christ. But we've been slowing down, uh, kind of developing a biblical theology of suffering, because I think it's appropriate for our times. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 8, hear the word of the Lord. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. And so Paul is opening up to us here. He's opening up his personal life to us. He's even giving us a peek into his private thoughts and feelings. He's telling us what was going on in his little heart, his little heart out of which his preaching flowed. And what we'll see in this passage today is that contrary to what we might expect our greatest breakthroughs and greatest growth in Christ will come through the worst experiences of our lives. Let me say that again. Contrary to what we might expect, our greatest breakthroughs and our greatest growth in Christ, our transformation, will come through the worst experiences of our lives. Let that sink in. Paul's greatest breakthrough in his life came when he was brought to the point of death and he had to rely on God. He had to learn to trust God's heart. The worst suffering that Paul could imagine, he suffered it. We don't know what it was when he speaks in verse 8 of this affliction that made him feel utterly burdened, that he actually despaired of life. He wanted to die. We don't know what it was. We could venture a guess like many scholars do, but it doesn't really matter 
whether we accurately identify this affliction that Paul is talking about in verse 8. Whatever it was, sickness, people slandering him, people accusing him of things, some kind of persecution, whatever it was, one, it was so bad that he wanted to die. And number two, it became the thing that led to his greatest breakthrough in ministry even though it was one of, if not the, worst experience of his life. And that's so foreign to us, isn't it? Especially as Western people, American people. Well, this is not something that we want to embrace, is it? We do not like and we kick against the truth. We kick against and push back against the idea that our greatest breakthroughs And growth might happen as we experience the worst suffering imaginable. But that's what Paul's getting at here. This awful affliction that sapped Paul of all strength to the point that he just wanted to die. That affliction became the catalyst for the greatest breakthrough in his life and in his ministry And it made him a deeper, more profound pastor. I mean, who'd have thunk? It wasn't Paul's degree from seminary that equipped him for ministry. It wasn't his impressive bookshelf full of theological books. It wasn't all the pastor conferences that he attended. Those helped. But what made Paul a profound, deep pastor was affliction. What made Paul a profound, deep pastor was suffering. What made Paul a profound, deep pastor was hardship and slander and accusations and people saying things about him that were not true. The thorn in the flesh, even. All of these things that we normally hate and we spurn and we avoid, they became the very things that catapulted Paul into becoming a deeper person and having an even more profound ministry. His enemies had no idea how what they were doing was actually benefiting Paul and then benefiting the people that he ministered to. I'm sure Paul could relate to Frodo Baggins in The Lord of the Rings. You know, from reading the books or watching the movies, the weight of carrying that ring, what it, what it caused Frodo, uh, what it did to him. And so he said to Gandalf one day, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And the ever-wise Gandalf replied, so do I, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Paul would have agreed with Frodo. I'm sure he wished he had not gone through these afflictions. But after having gone through them, and this specific one, Paul now agrees with Gandalf. It is not for Paul to decide what happens in his ministry. He can't control, he can't choose what happens in his ministry. He can't control what people, like the super apostles, were saying about them. We'll eventually get to them towards the end of the letter. He can't control what they're saying about him. The lies, the accusations, all that he can decide, all that he can do is to decide what to do with the time 
and the suffering that has been given to him. And learning that is the first step to becoming a deeper, more profound pastor, disciple, father, mother, student, child, etc. But why did God allow this suffering? Was it for breakthrough for Paul? Yes. Was it to make him a deeper, more profound pastor? Yes. Was it to make him more like Jesus? Yes. Was it for the comfort of the Corinthians? Yes. But God also allowed this so that you and I would come to learn and know and believe and embrace that our greatest breakthroughs in life will come through the most horrible sufferings of our life. God is able to change us, able to transform us, able to deepen us through affliction and through suffering. Now, doesn't this make you want to worship God? What kind of God can take pain and suffering and use it to deepen people? The God of the Bible, that's who. But notice, too, that Paul is not walking through this immense suffering and affliction alone. He has community. He has a family, a church family. Look at what he says here in these verses. Catch all these pronouns here. Verse 8, we is used four times in the word our. Verse 9, we is used two times, and then us and ourselves. Then in verse 10, us three times, then we and our. Then verse 11, us two more times, and then our. So once again in these verses, we get a reminder That our Christian walk is a community project. Your walk with God is not just you and Jesus on the beach with your Bible. That's great. You need that. But it involves all of us because we are the family of God. We walk together through the thick and the thin. And if you don't tell anyone about your situation and what's going on in that little heart of yours and you keep it all to yourselves then how in the world can we help? How can your brothers and sisters come alongside you and help? How can we pass on God's comfort to you? Listen, we're all sinners here in this church. We've actually had people leave because they said, you called my child a sinner in the children's class. We did, because the Bible does, and Jesus does, right? But listen, we're sinners here. I know that's not a popular word to say anymore. I know it's more popular to say we're broken and messy, and I like those words, and I'll use them probably in the next paragraph, but we're sinners, okay? We're rebels by nature because of Adam's sin, right? We're sinners here. Now, those of us who are trusted in Christ, we're in union with him, we've been adopted, we're righteous in God's eyes, but we're sinners in this church. We all struggle. Your pastor struggles, If you don't understand that about us and about this church that we are sinners, then you will be unnecessarily disappointed. But know that you're safe here. We're all messed up, but we will walk with you through whatever it is that you're going through. And we'll tell you over and over again, like Paul will eventually tell the Corinthians in this letter, his grace is sufficient. Trust him. He is going to bring redemption out of this situation Your greatest breakthrough and growth may very well come out of this season of your life. And that's what we'll tell you. But you got to tell us what's going on in that little heart of yours. 
Listen, Grace, one of the ways that the Lord supplies you with his grace and with his comfort is through this church body. So don't pull away. Stay put. Stay put and let the church, let the people of God walk with you through your suffering. Right here in this community of messed up sinners is where you find his sufficient grace. Through the word preached, through the sacraments, baptism in the Lord's Supper, through prayer, and through fellow sinners encouraging you to experience transformation by God's grace in Christ. But maybe you're afraid to open up, and I get that. Maybe you're afraid to open up and to share your sins. I said the S word again, didn't I? Not not just share your struggles. I'll use that word. Share your failures. I'll use that word. But sin. Maybe you're afraid to share your sin and your struggles and your doubts and your concerns and your fears. I want you to know that you are free to do that here. You are free to admit your weakness, free to admit your sin, free to admit your failure, free to admit your struggles in this church. Do you have marriage problems? Who doesn't? Right, married people? Who doesn't have married problems at some point in their marriage? Who doesn't have married problems, I want to say every day, but that makes my wife sound like she's bad. The problem's with me, okay? It's not with her. I'm going to get it. She's going to be like, what did you say? Listen, as one of my favorite theologians, John Gerstner, said, I am my problem, right? But are there not little marriage problems every day? You know I'm speaking the truth because some of you grab the toothpaste like this, right down the middle. And so you have marriage issues in your house every day or someone puts the toilet paper going backwards instead of over, which is the correct way. So some of you have marriage issues every day. You know what I'm talking about then, right? So if you have marriage problems and who doesn't and who doesn't have them every day, how are we going to help you and come alongside you and walk with you if you don't tell us? So tell someone and seek help and seek counsel. Are you struggling with parenting? And what parent isn't, right? You know every day parents have issues, right? Tell somebody. Or if you're single and you want to be married and you're just waiting, tell someone. Are you struggling with blank? You fill in the blanks. Tell somebody. We won't be surprised or we shouldn't be. We won't be startled by your sin or your mess or your struggles because we have read the Bible here at Grace. It's full of sinners. Listen, by the third chapter, things get messed up, right? Third chapter of the book, things get messed up real fast. We've read the Bible. It's full of sinners who struggle, just like Paul who struggled and was so burdened that he wanted to die. The pain was so strong in his life. The suffering was so immense that he just said to God, I want to die. Who hasn't been there a time or two? In this passage, Paul is opening up his little heart and how he struggles. And you're free to do that here at Grace. Grace is a safe place. It's a safe place for you to get real with what's going on in that little heart of yours. To tell your family what's going on. But there's more to Paul's suffering. God had a purpose in it. God always has a purpose through what we suffer. In fact, God has many purposes, plural, for us when we suffer. Paul shares one of the purposes of his affliction. Look at verse 9 now. 
Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So here's what life was like in Ephesus where Paul was at this time during this season of ministry for Paul. He felt like he was arrested, handcuffed, brought before a judge, pronounced guilty, and then given a death sentence. He felt like he was on death row. He was receiving death threat after death threat. It was like the doorbell rang and the Grim Reaper, Grim Reaper was standing on his porch. It was like the Grim Reaper every day was just like, ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. You again? Ding dong, ding dong. Death was knocking on Paul's door all day long and he desperately needed grace. So Paul is showing us here through his experience that suffering exposes what is always true about us. We are weak. We need God's sufficient grace. And suffering reminds us that God's sufficient grace isn't given to us in order to catapult us into a life of independence. God doesn't give you his sufficient grace to catapult you into a life of independence where you no longer need him. Listen, I was just in my office praying, God, help me, help me. And there's a part of me that's saying, and just take away my need of need. And it was as if the Spirit was saying, I'm not taking it away. I want you to be dependent on me. I'm not taking away your need for need, your need for my grace. God doesn't give us his grace so that we feel like we need him less. And so suffering comes along so that our hearts kind of begin to crack open like maybe an old creaky coffin. So our hearts begin to crack open again to God so that we deepen this vertical dependence on God and this horizontal dependence upon one another in our church family. So when we suffer, God is gently reminding us that we desperately need Him and His church. When we suffer, whatever it is, God is inviting us to abandon our idols and to go deep with Him and to learn to trust Him and to enjoy Him even more. Suffering can actually become the soil where we learn to grow and mature if we're willing to go there. But how do we grow and mature as Christians? How do we become deep people? By simply reading a Bible verse? That helps. That's good. You need to read your Bible. But that is not all. God's plan and one of the ways that he deepens us and makes us more profound is by taking us through suffering. God loves each one of us so much that he will reduce us to despair. He will break us down until the only cry from our heart is help. He strips us of our self-confidence. He knocks the swagger out of our step. And so suffering forces us to stare at ourselves in the mirror so that we finally face up to the fact that we are weak, we are helpless, and that our little heart is still full of sin. And it's in these hard moments that we finally allow our hearts to kind of open up like an old casket just creaking, and then we begin to trust him in new ways. How do we grow and mature? Not by simply going to a conference or a retreat. 
God does meet us at those places. I'm thankful for those. But more often than not, we grow and we mature when we are brought to the end of ourselves and we have nowhere else to turn but God. And it's in that place of desperation where we actually meet God. That's what Paul is saying here. He was suffering so bad that he thought he would die. He felt like he couldn't go on one more day. His strength was sapped. He was depleted. He was overwhelmed with despair, burdened beyond strength. There was no, about, no amount of gifting, no amount of swagger and pride that could sustain him through this hardship. Nothing in and of himself could help. He was actually at the end of himself. He felt he had received a death sentence. He was on death row. He got to eat his last meal. And now he was just waiting to be put in the electric chair. But why? Why was Paul brought to this place of desperation with death knocking on his door, ringing his uh, doorbell every day? Ding dong, ding dong. Why did God allow Paul to suffer like this? The answer is right there in verse 9. But that was to make us rely, not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul understood that afflictions and sufferings and hardships are meant to cause us to deepen our faith and trust in God who raises the dead. Think about that. The God we trust can raise the dead. So all the suffering that we experience in this world is meant to throw us back on this powerful God who can bring people back from the dead if he wants to. That's who we trust. Listen, You can take all the suffering of your life and compare it to death. Death is always going to trump all of your suffering as what's worse. The worst thing that could ever happen to you in this life is for you to experience death. Because death is not normal. So we can take all of our collective sufferings that we're going through today, all of our collective sufferings that we've ever gone through in our life or ever go through, and put them on the scale, and death will come along, and it will outweigh that. Because death is the most perverted, twisted thing that could ever happen to a human being. Because you were not meant to have your spirit yanked out of your body at death. Your spirit and your body are meant to be together forever. And death comes along and rips you in two pieces. That's not normal. It's twisted, perverted. So you can take all of the sufferings that we experience and try to compare them with death. And death always comes out as the worst thing that could ever happen to a human being. And now Paul's saying, we trust in the God who raises the dead. We trust in a God who is able to take a spirit and put it back in a glorified body to be with him forever. That's the God we trust. The world doesn't understand that. The Central Coast does not understand that. The powerful God that we believe in. And Paul says, I was brought to this place of despair so that I would learn not to trust in my gifting, my preaching, my books in my library, my conferences, my swagger, none of that. I was brought to this place so that I would be reminded that I need to trust God who raises the dead. So Paul figured out that his affliction thrust him back upon Jesus. It reminds me of something that people think that Charles Spurgeon said, but he actually didn't. But it's a great Charles Spurgeon did not actually say this quote. Here it is. 
I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Isn't that good? I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Spurgeon is quoted as saying that, but as far as any of us know, Spurgeon never actually said it. But it has been attributed to him. Still, it's a great great quote though, right? The point of this disputed Spurgeon quote is that whatever God in his sovereignty allows to come into your life, you can trust him. You can kiss the wave because it brings you closer to Jesus. So whatever God in his infinite wisdom allows to come into your life, you can trust him and even give thanks for what you're experiencing. You trust him because the wave throws you back on Jesus, the rock of ages, the only one that you can really trust the only one who can really help you. Now, please understand this. This does not mean that we call evil good. It does not mean that at all. We do not label evil things that occur in this world or in our life, we do not label them as good. We do not call evil good. Evil is evil. When human beings do evil to another human being, we do not call that good. It is evil. But it does mean that we can say at some time, at some point, and usually it's much later, we can't say what Joseph said when he was reunited with his brothers who had sold him into slavery. Later in his life, Joseph was able to say in Genesis 50, as far as you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. But notice that the alleged Spurgeon quote says, I have learned to kiss the wave. That means it may take time, even years, before you can say, I can kiss the wave. And that's okay. There's no rush on healing at all. There's no timetable for recovery. It may take a lifetime to learn, a lifetime to learn to kiss the wave, and that's okay. Listen, there's no pressure to emerge from some trial and suddenly be super spiritual or triumphalistic where you want to kiss the wave. It may take time, it may take years before you can look back with fondness on a time of deep suffering. And maybe you'll never be able to say it this side of eternity. I don't know. Some pain, some tragedy, some hardship, some experiences, some suffering, some evil that we experience may be so traumatic that you can't say it in this life. And that's okay. One day, when you stand before Jesus, you'll be able to. You may may struggle to kiss the wave in this life, and that's okay. But for normal, run-of-the-mill trials and hardships and sufferings, like where you have a week where like your alternator goes out in your car and then your refrigerator breaks down and then someone you know, steals your credit card, whatever, for nor- those are normal, okay? I'm normal compared to like really traumatic stuff. But for those normal things, I think many of us can and have been able to say, now that the trial is over, now that the suffering is over, that we can kiss the wave because it brought us closer to Jesus. It deepened our intimacy with the Lord. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He learned to trust the Lord in deeper ways because of what he suffered. And so I can look back over my life and the difficult experiences that I have endured, the hardships, the trials, the never-seem-to-end sufferings, 
And some of them now are something that I can look back on and say, they benefited me because I grew spiritually. I learned something through those trials. More of my sin was exposed. And my fellowship with Jesus became sweeter. And so I think many of us can look back over our lives and see the ways that we benefited spiritually from going through suffering and hardship. That's what the alleged Spurgeon quote is aiming at. If something throws us back upon Jesus, in time we can kiss the wave that delivered us to the rock of ages. So here's my point in saying all this. Who are you going to listen to? Someone who has suffered immensely or someone who has the easy life? The Corinthians were having to choose between Paul, who suffered nonstop, and the super apostles who had invaded the church, who lived in the ivory tower of triumphalism, and they always seemed to be living the victorious Christian life. Who are you going to trust? The person who's always chipper, always happy? Or the person who has suffered deeply? Paul has been on the leading edge of gospel ministry, and it has been one trial after another. And listen... That is the leading edge of gospel ministry. Trial after trial after trial after trial. That's what ministry is like. And so when Paul speaks, we should listen. Because he's been there, done that, got the t-shirt. He's back there again, got another t-shirt. Paul's closet is full of t-shirts. And what do Paul's t-shirts say? They say, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. When you can't seem to figure out what God is doing and why you are suffering the way that you are, trust his heart. Trust the heart of the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Listen, God calls us to trust him when we suffer. He does not call us to understand and figure out why we are suffering. God loves you. He's not asking you to understand and to grasp why you are suffering the way that you are suffering. That would be cruel. He's not expecting you to connect all the dots on why you are suffering. He never does that. Our brains couldn't handle that information. They would explode. Do you really want to know all the answers? Do you really want to know why you are suffering in all the ways that you are suffering? If so, then I hope you like having your head explode into a thousand pieces. Because that's what would happen if God told us everything. Even if he just told us a few things, our minds would explode. Our little pea-sized brains couldn't handle the information that God possesses. It's why he's God and we're not. So God is not asking you to understand everything. He's not asking you to understand all the reasons why you are suffering. That would be very cruel. He's just asking you to trust to trust him. And we can do that, right? We can trust Jesus. After all, how did we start this Christian journey? Trust. Isn't that how we got ourselves into the door of the kingdom of God? By trusting him? So we can trust him. Listen, if we've trusted him for our eternity, think about that. If we've trusted him and saying, Jesus, through your life, death, and resurrection, you've given me the righteousness that I need to stand in God's presence forever in eternity on the new earth. If we can trust Jesus for that, we can trust him with with what we're going through now, right? 
We can trust him because he gave us his son. He did save us while we were sinners, right? We believe Titus 3, right? Let me read it to you. What Paul says to his friend Titus, Titus 3, verses 3 to 8. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. So we can trust him, right? I mean, if we were like, to keep the Lord of the Rings theme going, we were like orcs, right? We were like orcs. If you've seen the movies, which capture it better than the books, in that you get a visual representation of it, that's what we were like when God sent Jesus to save us. If we were foolish and disobedient and slaves to passions and pleasures and full of hate, and then his goodness and kindness sent his son to die for us, for people like that, then surely we can trust him now, right? Now that we're adopted into his family. And really, that's all we can do, isn't it? Trust. The time will come in each of our lives when all we can do is go to God and trust him. The time will come when all you can do is go to God and hang on to him and just wait. And it will be hard and it will feel like your flesh is being ripped off of your bones. And you will feel like Paul, like you were given a death sentence. But in the wisdom of God and the power of God, it can be life transforming. It can make you a deep profound person equipped to pass on God's comfort to other sufferers. So when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. And in time, someday, either in this life or the next, you will be able to kiss the wave that throws you upon the rock of ages. What does it mean to kiss the wave? Dave Furman, who's written a book about this, he's a church-planting missionary in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. He has suffered immensely in his life. This is what he says about kissing the wave. And just like you want to listen to the Apostle Paul because he suffered so much, you want to listen to Dave Furman because he has suffered immensely. He says this, When I am in the midst of suffering, I am doing my best just to keep my head above water as the stormy waves of suffering crash over me. I've often longed to be lifted out of the rough and dark waters that feel as if they're engulfing me. I've spent many long nights despising those waves. I have never thought about kissing them. I don't think Spurgeon gives us trite advice, pretending as if suffering is not difficult. I also don't think that he is telling us to act as if our situations are easy. Just try harder and kiss those waves. No. Spurgeon tells us that God is doing more in our suffering than we can see with our eyes. None of us enjoys adversity. We want out, and yet God in his grace uses suffering for our benefit. Spurgeon has good advice for us. Stop flailing your arms in panic and embrace the God who has sovereignly designed your circumstances. Kiss the wave. 
In the midst of the storm, God has your good and his glory in mind. Romans 8.28 is not just a verse for a Christian greeting card, but one we should have branded on our hearts. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Hardship, sorrow, disability, persecution, and death are not good in themselves, but God in his grace uses them for our good and his glory. The nearness of God awakens us to him in our trials and draws us toward his grace. So understand what Paul is saying, grace, through this letter to this church that he planted. In a nutshell, he's saying, deep wounds deepen us. Deep wounds that we receive deepen us. They make us more profound people. And suffering will soften you if you let it. Suffering can make you a profound person who knows how to pass on God's comfort to other sufferers. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Again, it's like in the Lord of the Rings when Frodo was stabbed by the Nazgul on top of Weathertop. Frodo suffered a deep wound when he was stabbed, and he never really recovered from that stab wound, did he? But it made him a profound hobbit. That's what Paul here in 2 Corinthians is saying. He suffered immensely and he carried in his body the marks of suffering as he says in Galatians 6, 17. The scars of ministry remained, but just like Frodo, they made Paul a deep, profound pastor. Paul's sufferings, just like Frodo, deepened him. And so Paul is able to say in verse 10 that God delivered him. And now in faith, in trust, with a heart full of hope, Paul can now say, and he will deliver us. Paul trusts in the God who raises the dead. So believing the promises of God as you suffer deeply will make you a deep person. Understand this, Grace. Suffering can make you a profound Christian so that you emerge having experienced deeper intimacy with Jesus and trusting him more and then being able to pass God's comfort on to other people who suffer. Or, and I I understand the temptation, and I've seen it a thousand times, you can suffer and emerge more embittered with life, bitter towards other people, more angry at God, and sometimes even walking away from the church. I've seen it a thousand times. People suffer, and that's what happens. As Puritan John Flavel said, affliction is a pill which being wrapped up in patience and quiet submission may be easily swallowed. But discontent chews the pill and so embitters the soul. Some people suffer and they trust the Lord and they swallow the pill with patience and quiet submission and restful trust and they become more profound disciples. They become more profound hobbits like Frodo. But others with discontent And anger at God when they suffer. They chew the pill and the taste is bitter. And they swallow it and it embitters their soul. Paul, having suffered immensely to the point that he wanted to die, by God's grace, 
And because he humbled himself, Paul emerged from this deep sea of suffering, a profound pastor whose trust in Jesus was further deepened so that he could pass on this wisdom and this comfort to the Corinthian church. May it be true of us too. May we become a church full of profound hobbits who have been deepened by suffering. May we be like Frodo, bearing the scars from the cut he received on top of Weathertop, but being deepened by the deep cuts. May we heed the wisdom of Gandalf when he said, when we don't wish to suffer, that he said, all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And may we kiss the wave that throws us upon the rock of ages. And finally, when we can't trace his hand, may we trust his heart. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by your word because it, it is powerful. Two-edged sword, it just cuts open our little hearts and exposes us. And it just gets right to the heart of the matter that we are desperate and weak and we need you and we kick against suffering and we don't like it. So would you confront us today? Holy Spirit, would you get in our face with all gentleness and kindness and tenderness and just say, you can trust Jesus? Would you expose more and more of our sin in this church so that we get real with one another and become a family that truly cares? And I think we are, God. You're doing that work and we thank you. May we get more low before you, more humble. Keep working in our hearts and help us to make a difference here in our city and on the central coast so that unbelievers look at us and say, you're some of the most deep, profound people I've ever met and I don't know why. Would you tell me? And we'll be able to tell them about you, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you loved us and sent your son to die for orcs like us. We marvel at that. And we can say now, as we're about to sing, because of Jesus, it is well with our soul. In his name we pray. Amen.